If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Millie Cawthorn. Today we have the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, asking questions submitted by you along with some of the most popular online searches. This week we'll be discussing the history of medicine. Our expert is Mary Fissel, a professor in the Department of History at John Hopkins University. Putting the questions to Mary was our digital editorial assistant, Rachel Dinning. If I was an ordinary person living in the past, so if we, maybe we should take 18th century Bristol as an example, um, what would I do if I became unwell? How accessible was healthcare? Like, what sort of options would I have? Well, not great, but not nothing either. Um, I think that there's sort of an informal healthcare system in most times and places. It may not be regulated from the top, but there are a series of options. Always, always the first option is domestic care, which is to say taking care of yourself at home or having a family member take care of you. Um, plenty of 
available commercial remedies in the 18th century. You could go to an apothecary and pretty much ask for whatever you wanted if you could afford it. There were patent remedies already bottled up for some things. If you were, if you had the money or you had good connections, you could get care from a surgeon or a physician or an apothecary. Sometimes physicians and surgeons would see charity patients for free, you know, as as a charitable act. You could potentially get admitted to a hospital. Again, it's a charity. You have to show that you're worthwhile and that you could be, you know, morally respectable. What would make a person worthwhile or morally respectable, as you put it? In employment, not a vagrant, you know, not sexually suspect. I mean, the hospital originally, their ideal patient would have been a head of household, and they were going to sort of patch up the head of household and return him to his family so that he could be the wage earner, make sure the family kept going. So that was sort of their ideal. I mean, they took plenty of women also. It ended up that a lot of people who went to the hospital were those who didn't have local support, didn't have local family, that, you know, that sort of, it was a safety net institution, if you will. But there was also an infirmary in the Bristol workhouse. And so if you were really on the down and out and you were entitled to welfare support in the city, you might have ended up there getting help. So there is an array of choices. And we think about, um, when we think about healthcare in the past, whether it's as long ago as antiquity or 17th, 18th century, what we usually talk about is what's called a medical marketplace, which means basically patients chose amongst an array of healers. It's very unlike today when you would go to your GP under the NHS, that's who you see, or in America, you would go to your practitioner that you know, you have a relationship with that insurance might pay for. And then there's a whole set of decision trees from there about who you're allowed to see. Whereas in earlier time periods, it's much less regulated. And people could see whoever they could pay for, basically. And they did. Everything from the old woman who sold herbs down the street to a much more swanky physician with an MD from Edinburgh. And if we think of that swanky physician with an MD from Edinburgh University, um, what sort of training would that kind of medical practitioner go through? Was it worlds away from the kind of training that doctors might go through today, or was it very similar? So physicians meant that you had gone to university and that you had studied sort of a general curriculum usually and then studied a more specific medical curriculum that involved a lot of book learning. So you went to the library and you sat in classrooms and you listened to lectures and you learned a lot of theory about how the body worked. Many people also supplemented that with anatomical instruction. You could take lecture courses, you could see a dissection. Maybe if you were really keen on anatomy, you might actually do some dissecting yourself. The piece that looks really different then to now is the amount of clinical experience that physicians had while they were training. They had very little clinical experience compared to today. Today, you know, it's sort of half and half or more in medical school, time spent on the wards actually seeing sick people. Whereas then you might walk the wards, as they said, but it wasn't considered as big a part of your education. So they had a lot of knowledge, but physicians, I'd say, their education tilted towards the theoretical. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, 
I suppose this might be a bit of a difficult question to answer, but would it have been better then if you were sick in the past to seek out somebody who had perhaps more practical hands-on experience of an illness? Um, So maybe not a physician necessarily who had this academic point of view, but I don't know, let's say the example of childbirth, would you be better off finding a midwife who delivered, you know, a number of babies rather than going to a university educated physician? Oh, absolutely. In my view, I mean, childbirth was something that midwives did. It's not really a, a, a male procedure, a male medical procedure. It becomes one gradually in the 18th and 19th centuries. But no, you'd be better off with a very experienced, wise midwife, for sure. Um, depends on your ailment, who you would want to get help from. So a lot of basic health care was provided by surgeons, and surgeons were not the operative surgeon we think of today, you know, in the OR, gowned and all. They basically took care of a lot of outside-of-the-body type problems, which included fractures, like, you know, broken legs, broken arms, hernias, any swelling on the outside of the body, tumors, anything like that. That was their remit. They also took care of venereal disease because its manifestations were often on the outside of the body. So in some ways, they're as much the ancestor of a GP as was the physician, in the sense of the realm of health care that they provided. And the apothecary did the drug side of things, but he'd be perfectly happy to advise you. If you went along to the apothecary's shop and said, you know, my mom's sick, here's what's happening, um, they'd be very happy to prescribe for you. In theory, they were doing what the physician said, but actually they were providing a big amount of health care. So you had a lot of options. So if we think about the history of medicine more generally now, um, I'm curious to know, in your opinion, what are some of the biggest turning points or who was um, a key game changer in the history of medicine? Oh, that's a great question. I think I'd choose... I think I'd choose three moments. Um, Other historians might choose others. I think that inoculation for smallpox, which becomes something in the European and American world in the 18th century, although we're pretty late to the party, actually. It's a practice that had already been happening in Asia and Africa for a very long time. And I think this is significant because it's the first time that people think you can individually, like, prevent somebody dying from a disease. So in smallpox inoculation, you're given a mild case of smallpox itself, which sounds pretty scary, but a mild case that's managed means you'll survive and you're going to be immune to it. And smallpox just ravaged through populations at that point. There were terrible epidemics. So I think the vision, the belief that human intervention could actually alter that is really important. I think the other, the sort of next game changer I'd think about is obviously the advent of germ theory in the 19th century. Infectious diseases killed so, so, so many people. I don't think we really need a refresher on that at our current moment, how dangerous infectious diseases are. And I think there I'd think about not so much the theory, but when medical scientists began to figure out how that theory might actually make it better. Because a theory is fine, but it doesn't necessarily fix anything. So, say, diphtheria antitoxin in the 1880s is one of the first times that germ theory has a specific therapeutic that can make you better. 
Do you mind actually um, giving us a brief definition of of what germ theory was um, and who came up with it? Germ theory is um, the idea that infectious diseases are caused by what we would call germs, these small microscopic particles we can't see. It comes out of French and German laboratory medicine in the latter half of the 19th century. Probably the name most associated with it is the German Robert Koch, who first showed the cause of tuberculosis, a big, big killer. So that theory that it wasn't just bad air in general in some way, but actually there are these microscopic particles that made you sick and that would be transmitted in clearly understandable ways was a huge breakthrough, a huge breakthrough. But from my perspective, like I said, theory's great, but let's see some application. And I've always thought diphtheria antitoxin was a really signal moment. It's in the middle of the 1880s, and basically... Antiserum is made, they used to inject um, stuff into horses, but the idea is that it sort of has what we would call the antibodies and can help, help fight the illness. And in England, what they did was they kept diphtheria antitoxin in local police stations because local police stations were open day and night. And so you had a really sick kid, the doctor came to your house and said, oh, it's diphtheria. You could go to the local police station and get this incredibly powerful remedy and save your kid's life. To me, that's a really dramatic moment. Okay, it's only one disease, but it showed that the germ theory could actually save lives. And then, obviously, from there, there's a number of other improvements. Salvarsan for syphilis in the early 20th century, the sulfa drugs of the late 30s, leading up to the breakthrough of penicillin in the 40s. But there's a kind of sequence of how germ theory can actually save lives that I think is really impressive. So I'd see that as a crucial turning point. And I think the third turning point I would have is the advent of contraception. Um, you know, I'm a feminist, I'm a woman, and I think the ability to make pregnancy a choice rather than a happenstance is really significant. And that starts, well, I think women have been practicing various contraceptive means for forever, but it starts to become a more widely publicized thing in the early 19th century. Methods we might not think are terribly effective, douching, for example, but, but it opened up the possibility that pregnancy didn't automatically have to result. Yeah, that's a a really interesting one. What sort of contraceptive methods were women in the past using before the advent of things like the pill, the coil, those, you know, modern methods of preventing pregnancy? I suppose you've already mentioned douching. Um, The other big kind of mechanical one would have been uh, a sponge soaked in vinegar, because and then inserted in the vagina because the acidity would in theory you know make the the sperm non-motile um there were herbal remedies that could either be seen as contraceptive or as early abortifacients really early abortifacients and the two are very blurred together in most people's minds for most of most of time and there's certain herbs that 
sort of everybody knew pregnant women ought not to take. So that's really the primary way. They didn't have the understanding that we have of the timing of the menstrual cycle. And so there was no way that, you know, what we call the rhythm method would have been successful because they thought women were the most fertile at a time that we don't think. They thought right after the menses ended, women were the most fertile. We don't think that anymore. So mostly it's these kind of herbal preparations. And then in the 19th century, they begin to have these more kind of technological means. Mm -hmm. And then uh, bringing it back to a more general question, um, do you think it's fair to assume that the history of medicine has been one of steady progress and continual improvement, or is that an overly simplistic way of looking at things? Can we say that we have been on a you know, steady upwards trajectory? Well, historians like to think that things are more complicated than that. I mean, that's our job, right, is to understand the complexities. So I think that it's not a steady upwards, you know, incline towards today. I'm certainly grateful that I live today. I'm grateful that I live in a moment of anesthesia and antibiotics and antisepsis. Don't misunderstand me. However, I think that there are... There's aspects of things we may have lost as well as we have gained in the sense of certain kinds of patient autonomy in terms of the ways in which patients' narratives of illness were attended to in the past, where today they're sort of reduced sometimes to laboratory numbers, tests, I think, I think it's a more complex picture than just onwards and upwards, but I think overall, of course, the advent of scientific medicine has been a tremendous benefit and, you know, has really changed the face of how we live. So you mentioned that you're grateful that you were born in an era of anesthesia, um, and one of my questions to you actually was, what did people do before anesthetics were invented? Were surgeries possible obviously today you can be put to sleep or you can have a part of your body put to sleep but what did we do before well we didn't have operative surgery like we have today uh, because people would have died of shock and they just couldn't have sustained it so the very few kinds of operative surgery were the ones you could do very very quickly so um, operating for bladder stones was done from the early modern period, most famously the diarist Samuel Pepys suffered and actually had surgery and successful surgery. He recovered and he used to have a banquet every year as an anniversary and show off the stone that had been extracted from him. But, you know, a good operator did it in two minutes or less because you just couldn't sustain it for longer than that. Um, the other very quick thing that was done was amputation especially on the battlefield. But amputation was a common, speedy surgical procedure. But other than that, not really much. Once, very, very rarely, if a woman had breast cancer, a surgeon might try to um, do surgery for that and remove her breast and the tumor. But rare, rare. Again, because of the, they didn't know about shock and they didn't call it that, but they knew that a person couldn't sustain that. So it's only with the advent of anesthesia that you have modern operative surgery. That kind of surgery really takes off from the 1870s, 80s, 90s. Yeah, I suppose another question I'd like to ask 
is what advancements in the history of medicine have occurred off the back of practices or experiments that we might consider unethical today? Um, Example might be grave robbing bodies for dissection, which obviously taught people a lot about human anatomy, but was grossly unethical. Um, Yeah. What other examples are there? Well, I think I'd go back to one of my earlier examples of inoculation, because when Lady Mary Wortley Montague brought the practice of inoculation from Constantinople, where she'd been living because her husband was the ambassador there, she brought it to London. She'd had her own children inoculated in Constantinople. She brings it back to London in the early 18th century, and they do a trial where they test it on prisoners, and, you know, condemned prisoners were offered the option, basically, what kind of option is that? Um, that's not what we would call informed consent. And they were inoculated. And then the part that always gets me is I think it was six people, three men, three women, and then the three women had to nurse smallpox patients back to health to show that, in fact, they were not going to get it, that they were, in fact, safe. Um, and there's, you know, that's, <laughs> that's ethically wrong in every dimension, And yet, it did show that inoculation was safe and successful and created a whole, you know, movement thereafter to ensure that people, you know, began to have people get inoculated, showed that it was safe. And so, it it was a real advance. When did medical ethics and the idea of informed consent, so that is to say, when a healthcare provider educates their patient about the risks or benefits of a procedure. Um, When did those things come into practice? Well, informed consent is really the product of um, the Nuremberg trials after the Second World War and the horrific forms of experimentation that had happened in um, concentration camps. And everyone recognized that that a, a very firm line had to be drawn. So that's really the first kind of codification of informed consent. There had been medical ethics before that, but it hadn't really been focused as much on the patient. Often it was focused in part on doctors' relationships with other doctors, how to behave professionally and politely to your colleagues as much as about relations at the bedside. Do you have any examples of um, stories that might shock a modern-day listener about practices that used to take place in the past. I mentioned grave robbing before. Certainly grave robbing is one. It's a gross disrespect of the dead and something that people really, really didn't like. The practice in the 18th century of condemned criminals who are going to be hanged, that their bodies could be given to the surgeons, was truly adding insult to injury. I mean, people could be hanged for incredibly small, what we would see as incredibly small crimes. Um, These were not violent criminals say stole something you know worth more than i think it was 10 shillings some very relatively small amount and they could be hanged for it so certainly we would see that as you know extremely unethical but that was how that worked so i think for americans the biggest episode in sort of unethical medical research is the tuskegee syphilis study and this is a study that looked at untreated syphilis in African-American men in the South, in Macon County, in Alabama. And from the 1930s, these men were diagnosed 
with a Wasserman as having syphilis, and then nothing was done. All that happened was that they were monitored until they died, and then the family was asked to grant permission for an autopsy so that they could look at the pathological study of the damage syphilis had done to these men. When the study uh, was finally sort of outed publicly in 1972 by a journalist, everyone was appalled. Clearly this was terrible. Why were we going to study the natural history of a disease we already knew was deadly? But the results of the study were published in medical journals for decades between the 30s and the 70s, and somehow nobody seemed to think about how incredibly unethical the study was. So for Americans, that's really the watershed in terms of the sort of harm that not attending to medical ethics could cause. Were there any repercussions in that case for the people at the the medical people involved um and what what happened to the surviving men well the surviving men were the surviving men were were very elderly and there weren't very many of them they received a a fancy apology from the white house and um sums of money that were supposed to in some way be some kind of recompense but you know really i don't I don't think we can possibly think that justice was truly done. All I can say is, after that, um, greater attention was paid to appropriate medical ethics. And, you know, today we have review boards and many steps before a study can be, a study design can be approved before it has ever begun. So that's the sort of long shadow of some of that. But for those men and those communities, it's just a gross injustice. The other thing that I would want to add about the Tuskegee study is that it contributed hugely to the kinds of distrust that Black Americans have of the medical profession and has caused real harm, long-lasting harm, in terms of healthcare access, trust, the patient-practitioner relationship. The knock-on effects have been very, very substantial. You know, all African Americans know that story, and as well they should. So the Tuskegee syphilis studies are a really good example of um, an area where medical ethics weren't necessarily there, and it didn't even have a good outcome. In fact, it had a very poor outcome. Um, as you said, it contributed to this distrust. Um, but Can you think of any examples in medicine where an unethical study actually had a positive outcome in terms of developing perhaps an understanding of an illness that there might not have been otherwise? I can't think of an example where unethical studies have provided a clear sort of therapeutic outcome that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Certainly it is true in the Renaissance that people like Vesalius who provided a landmark anatomy atlas was doing it on bodies that were largely stolen from graves, and that is unethical. And in that sense, medical knowledge did advance from that practice. But but I think that's really the exception. Um, so I wanted to talk about gender. Um, so we know that some diseases and conditions affect men and women differently. Have male and female bodies been considered medically different throughout time? Um, Yes, but in different ways. Um, So for a lot of 
the past classical antiquity through the Renaissance into the 18th century, men and women were seen as sort of on a spectrum, that they were different, but they were different uh, sort of according to not an absolute difference. Um, Women were in the humoral system colder and wetter, and men were hotter and drier. And that makes sense because everyone knows if you want to grow a new seed, a cool, damp field is a lot better than a hot, bakey one. And so it was women whose bodies carried new life, and therefore it made sense that they were cold and wet. So there was a a whole set of explanations about how they were different. And then, obviously, as humoral theory waned, we moved into a period where men and women were more categorically different in medicine. They were seen as wholly different. I mean, women's nerves were finer and more delicate, and, you know, men were more robust. Men were ruled by their heads, and women were ruled by their uteruses. So women were irrational creatures. I mean, from my point of view, in gender relations, it was definitely a step backwards from humoral medicine in that it really made women women in every cell of their body and not in a good way. And it's only in, you know, the much more recent past that we've come come through that part and understand uh, gender difference, sexual difference in a more nuanced way. I think medicine for the 20th century mostly considered man the default in every way, and women were only sort of thought about when they were different. So, in other words, you learned female anatomy if you have to learn about pregnancy and reproduction, but the male was the, the type and woman was the, the alternative, which I don't think really helped women's health very much. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. From what we know of the Black Death, it was completely overwhelming. And not just because of the very high loss of life, all life kind of ground to a halt. Often, these kinds of epidemics, they are completely, they completely alter our social landscape for a while. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? 
you need indeed. And thinking about women in medicine more generally now, um, what are some significant contributions made by women to the practice of medicine? Um, have we always had female doctors? When could when who was the first female doctor? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, women have been healing from time out of mind, right? Forever and ever and ever. And it's only with the advent of universities in the high Middle Ages, the 1200s and 1300s, that we see a distinction that some people get called doctor and those people are men, because categorically you have to be male and have Latin in order to go to a university. But that doesn't mean there weren't women healers. There's a wonderful there's evidence from a trial in 1322 that's really striking. A practitioner named Jacqueline Felici in Paris was had up by the Paris Faculty of Medicine who didn't like that she was practicing medicine. And they said, you can't practice medicine, you don't have Latin, so you're just, you're out of the game. But she had really interesting testimony in her defense that she'd healed patients very successfully, including patients that some of the male faculty of medicine had not succeeded in healing. So clearly she was a very experienced and successful practitioner. Nevertheless, she lost under threat of excommunication. Now, she's just one example. There were probably many others of her type. So we know that there were plenty of women healers in the past, but with the advent of universities, they had to practice in the shadows a little bit more. Technically, the first woman doctor is, of course, Elizabeth Blackwell. She's born in Bristol in the UK. Um, her family emigrated to the United States because her father was involved in abolition work, and she really wanted to be a doctor after she saw a female friend die a painful death. And that was challenging because none of the medical schools wanted to take her. She applied to a bunch of them, and Geneva Medical College in upstate New York didn't really know what to do with the request. So the faculty there were like, oh, I don't know. And so they decided to let the students vote as to whether or not she should be admitted because they thought that way they'll pass the buck. It's someone else's responsibility. And to their horror, the students thought it was hilarious and said yes. And so then they had to admit her in 1847. And that was not what they expected. So she graduates in 1849. And she goes back to England for a while. She's actually the first woman on the British Medical Register. And it's only really, I mean, Geneva, that was one, right? That's an N of one. They didn't make that mistake again as they saw it. So it's really with the advent of women's medical colleges in America in the 1850s that we see women entering medical education in real numbers. It takes longer on your side of the ocean. Um, it's really the Sophia Jex Blake and the so-called Edinburgh Seven that finally storm the Citadel, as it were, and are actually allowed to go to medical school in Edinburgh in the 1870s. But then, shamefully, the university decided to rescind their degrees. I think it's 1873 that they shouldn't have done that. And once again, it's the foundation of medical colleges for women in Britain that actually creates the space for women physicians. And in, in America and in Britain, these pioneering women physicians start opening small hospitals where women can also get clinical training. And that's really how women get to become physicians. What for you is a really standout contribution to the history of medicine made by a woman? 
Oh, I think, well, right here where I am at Johns Hopkins, Helen Tausig's work on the blue baby operation, where babies are born with a defect in the heart and being able to mend that while they are tiny, tiny babies saves their lives. So that's a a moment, I would say, of real significance in being able to have a woman um, create a medical innovation that saves lives. Oh, that's a really nice example and probably one that not many people are aware of, actually. Um, So I wanted to also ask you some topical questions. Obviously, at the moment, we're living in the middle of a global pandemic. And I'm curious about pandemics of the past. Uh, Is the current coronavirus situation, are there any major differences or similarities perhaps with pandemics, historic pandemics. Um, So we've got obviously the Black Death, we've got Spanish influenza. What sort of parallels can we draw? So yes, we've experienced many pandemics in the past. It's true that with airplane travel, etc., pandemics seem to spread much faster today than they have in the past. But the fundamental patterns are there for centuries. You know, I teach the Black Death often, And some of the same themes that we see in the Black Death we see today. The Spanish flu epidemic right after the First World War, we see some of the same themes we see today. That's when mask wearing becomes a thing and people start wearing masks and arguing about wearing masks. And we see the same... Oh, I was going to ask you about mask wearing. Obviously, today we're seeing people debating are they effective do they work I don't want to wear them because xyz was that the case in the past was there this opposition to them yes and so mask wearing actually became significant a little bit before that in um outbreaks of plague in Manchuria. There were serious arguments there, much like today, about whether mask wearing was successful or not. And it's really a heroic young doctor who persuades everyone that mask wearing is in fact helpful and sort of starts that process going. I think in the um, influenza epidemic, in some ways it's different because the world was already exhausted by years of war. But the pressing questions of what to do, how much to close down, whether to permit people to gather in public are exactly the questions that we face today. And the problems of shortages of healthcare and of hospital beds are exactly the same. I was really reminded of this this spring when in my city in Baltimore, the local civic center was made into an emergency hospital facility for COVID. In New York, the same kind of thing, a convention center was remade into an emergency hospital. There's very moving photographs from the Spanish flu. I don't like to call it the Spanish flu. That's just not the kind of naming I want. The influenza epidemic, um, Again, this kind of temporary hospital shelters built wherever they could build them, whatever space they could take over in order to treat the huge numbers of sick people. And I think in some ways, rather like our situation today, medical science didn't have a lot of great answers. Um, There weren't there were not effective means of cure necessarily. A lot of what made people get better was really good nursing care basic kind of helping the body to recover itself. And that's, you know, I think that's where we are today. There are things people do, but a lot of the initial care has been taking care of sick people. 
So one thing I'm really curious about with the COVID pandemic is obviously we're, we're living it. Um, it's something that's consuming our lives. So, you know, if you pick up the phone to speak to a friend or a family member, it's the first thing that you'll talk about, um, sadly. <laughs> um, it's on the news 24-7. It's just permeating every aspect of our lives. Um, was this the case in the past? Would, the, would people living in the time of Spanish flu have been talking about it to the same extent that we are? Was it permeating sort of every area of their life in the same way? Or was it just sort of ticking away in the background? Oh, what a great question. I think it was as encompassing um, from the testimonies that we see of people in the past. Certainly in, you know, from what we know of the Black Death in the middle of the 14th century, it was completely overwhelming. And not just because of the very high loss of life, all life kind of ground to a halt. So very much so in the cholera epidemics of the 19th century in the 1830s, 1860s, etc. Very similar kinds of things were all life ground to a halt. Um, it was just so, so overwhelming. And certainly in the influenza epidemic, very similar. Now, it is true that after the Black Death, the plague returned to Europe repeatedly. You know, it's sort of, uh, you know, 20, 30 years later. And there, I think it depends on the severity of the outbreak, how much it completely disrupted life. Sometimes it seems very like the beginning, you know, the first one that Europeans remembered. There were plagues before that, but the first ones Europeans remembered where it was just completely overwhelming. And other times, it was a little bit smaller of a phenomenon and more of normal life went on. But often, these kinds of epidemics, they are completely, they completely alter our social landscape for a while. So I also wanted to talk to you about vaccines. Um, obviously, this is something in the news every day at the moment. Are we going to get a vaccine soon? Will people take the vaccine when we have it? Um, so firstly, I suppose, could you tell our listeners about the history of vaccination? Um, when were vaccines invented? A little bit about that. And then secondly, is opposition to vaccines, so the anti-vax movement that we perhaps see today, is that a modern phenomenon or is there a historical precedent for it? Did people turn around and say, I'm not taking vaccines in the past? Oh, that's a very rich set of questions. Um, so I talked earlier about inoculation. And inoculation is the practice where you get a weakened form of smallpox itself. And then in the late, very end of the 18th century, Edward Jenner, a physician practicing in Gloucestershire, started putting things together. And he had noticed that often milkmaids had beautiful, clear complexions, you know, all the stereotypes of lovely milkmaids. And he'd heard local talk that there was this other disease, cowpox, and that milkmaids would get cowpox and that that somehow offered protection against the much more serious disease of smallpox. So he began to investigate that in ways, again, that we probably wouldn't consider ethical today and discovered that, in fact, cowpox was protective against smallpox. And so vaccination comes from the Latin word for cow, 
vaca because it was cowpox was the original. And this vaccination process quickly spread, you know, all over the world. It was very quickly understood as incredibly successful. In the Napoleonic Wars, um, Jenner requested the release of some English prisoners of war, and Napoleon said, we can refuse that man nothing. You know, absolutely. You know, anything that man asked for, this is such an incredible gift to mankind. So as vaccination becomes an accepted practice, slowly in the 19th century, states start to want to make people get vaccinated, and that immediately creates anti-vaccination movements. So there were, in the middle of the 19th century, British working-class anti-vaccination movements that just didn't want the state ruling their bodies, very like today, and a lot of conflict about whether or not they could resist. And it's a template for, I think, where we are today in terms of people arguing that the state should not have the right to inject something into their bodies. It seems like a common theme with both vaccines and masks, I suppose, um, that throughout history, people just don't like being told what to do. Is that fair? No, I think that's true. And I think, um, you know, what are the limits of state power and state authority is a very profound political question. We may not always like the way it plays out on the ground in terms of what people the choices people make. But those are very profound political questions. Something that comes up quite a lot here in the UK is the right, as particularly in light of recent events, is how we as a society coped with the limitations put on us during the Second World War. So for example, you know, rationing and um, in places like London having to black out your windows, that kind of thing. Um, And some of the things that get said about this are that we were much more compliant back then. Um, I'm not sure whether that's a fair assessment or not, to be honest. Um, What do you think? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's hard to think of what kind of index you would use to measure that. But I also think that, you know, in the Second World War, there was very strong leadership coming from the top that really made it clear that this was expected behavior. It doesn't mean everybody did it, but I think we're in a much more complicated mess now when we see leaders not wearing masks and not doing the things that, you know, they're asking everybody else to do. I think it becomes a lot more complicated. And the kinds of questioning of science that we're living through now it's 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 a very different world. I mean, everyone can understand the principle of blackout, right? The Nazis won't see where to drop the bombs if there aren't any lights. It's not that's not high-powered science. And so in some senses there's a much more common sense approach to that that whole set of behaviors. Again, I agree. I think there's a tremendous amount of myth-making now as the very 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 last of that generation dies. There is a whole set of myth-making about the experience of the Second World War that's very easy to make different to how we are now, but of course, it was more complicated and there was more pushback and lived experience was much more varied than the myth would have it. I have some questions that have been sent in by our listeners on social media. Okay. Um, So, which I'll put to you, if you don't mind. 
So Stephanie Lum on Facebook would like to know what were the deductive methods used by scientists in the past to discover what worked? So she gives the example, we know that leeches actually have antiseptic benefits now, but how did people in the past find this out initially? Well, that's actually a complex set of questions, a very rich set. Um, Most of the time in the past, it was trial and error, especially for therapeutics. Um, testing and trying over and over again and seeing, oh, look, this person is getting better. Maybe we want to try that again. And many of the herbal remedies that were the foundation of therapeutics, they do have strong effects on the body. I mean, our modern pharmaceuticals, some of them come from plants. So it's not surprising that when people tried and tested, some things had some effects and seemed to work. The complicated part is that what we would now understand those things doing and what they thought they were doing were very different. So your listener says, well, leeches have antiseptic properties. That's true, but that's not why they thought leeches worked. They thought leeches worked because the person had an excess of blood and needed to be have some of that blood let. So it's really hard to kind of match up those two different ways of thinking. So a lot of the thinking was trial and error, but there was theory-based. Humoral medicine was very rich, and so there was plenty of theory about what worked in terms of rebalancing the humorous and bringing people back to a state of health. So it's a mix. It's a mix. Oh, I'm just going to jump in and ask you, actually, what was the four humors theory? Um, We've mentioned it. It's been mentioned a couple of times on this podcast, and perhaps you'd like to give our listeners an overview because it was such a you know it was such a prevalent belief for for such a time. Sure. So it was believed that the body was made up of these four fluid components um, that you know they knew they're about solid organs, but the important part was these four components blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. And each one of these components had qualities of, you know, hot and wet or cold and dry. And each person had their own individual balance amongst these four. So people tended to have, you know, it wasn't like everyone was 25%, 25%, 25%, 25%. You had, each person had their own individual balance and health was a means of restoring you back to your balance. You got sick when these got out of balance. And I think, you know, we live with central heating and umbrellas and raincoats. We live much further removed from nature. People in this earlier time period understood their bodies to be interacting with nature much more, and they were in some senses much more porous to their environments. And so getting soaked to the skin could make you cold and wet and kind of upset your humoral balance such that you might get sick from that. And you needed to be able to sort of combat that in various ways. The humoral system lasted for about two millennia. And I think one of the appealing parts about it is that it's pretty simple in some ways, like I just explained it. You can have a much more complicated explanation. But the way it worked, it sort of fit with lived experience pretty well. It explained, for example, that women are colder and wetter than men. They don't burn off their food as well. And because they don't burn off their food as well, they have to menstruate. That's going to get rid of that extra stuff. But we know that very skinny dancers, for example, might not menstruate. Why is that? 
Well, they're doing so much exercise that they're burning that off, and that's why they don't menstruate. So it seemed to work with lived experience. I think if you have a head cold and you're blowing your nose all the time and you can't think right, well, that's phlegm, isn't it? You know, that's what you're blowing out into your hanky. It, it fits with how people lived in their bodies and seem to have a lot of explanatory power. Mm-hmm. So slightly different question. Um, we've had loads of people, particularly on Instagram, messages to ask, how did women manage menstruation in the past? What do we know about periods and how they were perceived, how women dealt with them? What can you tell us? Well, I mean, sad to say, we know very, very little because it's something that didn't get written down right? Women did what they did, but there was no need to write it down. Many women were more likely to not know how to write um, than men. They might read, but they didn't write. So we really know very little. As far as we know, cloths, you know, they just um, tucked cloths up and kind of got through it that way, but we know very little. However, I do think we have to understand that, first of all, Many women were pregnant or lactating for a lot of their adult lives, and so they didn't menstruate nearly as often, and they were undernourished, and we know that that can also make women not menstruate. So our modern kind of every 28 days, you know, alleged regularity was probably not what pre-modern women experienced. Um, It was probably a much sort of relatively rarer occurrence. Um, Tommy... Mac on Instagram wants to know how important were autopsies in advancing our understanding of the human body? Ah, well, I think it depends on whether we mean autopsies or we mean the larger category of dissections for anatomical purposes, because an autopsy is a bit more focused as to find out the cause of death. And certainly things were learned there. Pathological anatomy really takes off in the 19th century and the sense of a localized kind of disease. It's the successor to the humoral theory where you are looking for a specific place in the body with, as it were, specific fingerprints of a disease. That was an important contributor to medical knowledge. It helped us understand a whole range of ailments. So they were important, but overall anatomical dissections, I think, were probably more important in terms of understanding, or as important, I'd say, in terms of understanding the structure and function of the human body. So both together. And then quite a few people have asked, when did magic, and I suppose that covers quite a broad spectrum of of things, um, but when did magic stop being considered medicinal? Ah, that's a lovely question. And of course, it all depends on what you mean by magic, right? Um, I mean, if you think of magic as hidden causes, which is what it was usually meant to mean in an earlier time period, um, you know, it's still magical today. I can't explain to you how a CAT scan machine works. I might be in one and get scanned, but I can't tell you how it takes a picture of my insides. Or placebo effect. You know, the placebo effect works for many people for some things. Um, You know, we could consider that sort of magical. We have another explanation. It's psychological, but you could consider it magical. So, it really depends on what you count as magical. But broadly speaking, I would say late 18th, early 19th century, if I had to pick a time. But I think... There are practices that probably continue that nobody around them maybe thought were magical, but they still did them. One of my favorite examples is actually from Bristol, 
which is um, a woman in the 18th century who wore her doctor's prescription on a little piece of paper on a string around her neck. Like she didn't get filled. She just thought that it had these magical properties. And it's just really small scale, but it tells you a lot about how ordinary people might have understood the power of the written word. And, you know, it would sort of escape your attention unless you happen to trip over it and you're a historian interested in such things. So I think magic has a long afterlife. Yeah, that's a really interesting one, actually. I guess it was working like a placebo or something around her neck. Yeah, I mean, it's like an amulet. Amulets had long been popular for healing. um, And we have no idea, you know, what, we don't really know the outcome. Um, We just know this one sort of snapshot moment in time. And, you know, most things get better by themselves, most things. And so, you know, you can explain all kinds of things with that um, sort of percentage likelihood of improvement. So another question that came up quite a lot is what is the earliest known evidence of medicine being used or practiced? Uh, That's tough because um, when you go way, way back, you don't have written records and you don't have much evidence of medical practice. But we know from the very earliest that even prehistoric man was doing medical procedures. There's some very ancient skeletons which have skulls that have evidence of what's called trephination, which is when there's a head injury, you... um, carve a circle out of the skull bone and lift that circle out and it relieves we understand it as relieving pressure on the brain such that a swollen inflamed brain can kind of calm down and not get too hurt inside the bony cavity of the skull now we don't know why they were doing it what narrative they had about why this worked but there are remains where it's clear that the bone began to heal. In other words, the person didn't die from that moment of operation, but they lived afterwards for some time because the bone grew back. So that's evidence of some kind of procedure that we would think of as healing. It's very challenging to know what the circumstances were, but that's, you know, that's prehistoric before the written record. So that says a long time ago. I guess that could be considered an early example of surgery, um, which kind of brings me on to the next question from Susan Ellis on Facebook, who wants to know how successful were early surgeries? Well, like I said before, a lot of surgery was not um, what we think of as operative surgery in the period up to the middle of the 19th century. So some of them, like the bladder stone surgery was actually quite effective. Like if you could remove it, the person would be a lot better. Once you get into the middle of the 19th century and you have, like I said, anesthesia and antisepsis, we begin to see better results um, because people are, well, let me re-say that. Once we get into the middle of the 19th century with the advent of anesthesia and antisepsis, a whole new world of operative surgery opens up and things like appendicitis can be cured by removing the inflamed appendix. That's dramatically amazing. I mean, that's a huge improvement. So I would say that over some decades in the later 19th century, as techniques are improved for anesthesia, etc., and people learn how to deal with some of the consequences of surgery, it becomes much more successful. And it's, you know, a relatively... um, 
you know, short period of time that some of those hallmarks of good surgical practice that endure to today get created. The invention, for example, of rubber gloves so that, you know, infection can't be spread, that it can be really sterile field. Those sorts of things came about relatively quickly in surgery and made it um, relatively successful. And I suppose it's time for my final question to you, um, which is, if you could meet anyone in the history of medicine, who would you choose and why? Ah, what a lovely question. I think I would choose to meet Sarah Stone, who was a midwife who lived in Bristol at one point of her life. She um, dies in 1737, and she's, you know, probably in her 50s by then. Um, I first encountered her when I was working on my dissertation, and she is the second English midwife to ever publish a book. And her book is gripping reading. It's about her cases. And she writes incredibly, almost novelistically. You really feel that you're there on the scene. She first started practicing in Bridgewater and then moved to Taunton and then to Bristol and then moved to London. So I have a lot of questions for her. First of all, I kind of want to know how she had the gumption to do all these moves and then move to the metropolis and to set up practice there. Like, what was she thinking about? I want to know how she learned to write, because she writes so well. We know she was trained in midwifery by her mother, who was also a skilled midwife, and her daughter was also a midwife. And in her book, she says that she has this particular maneuver that she's worked out that can help deliver a baby that's getting stuck, but she doesn't tell us what it is because she wants her daughter to have that trade secret. And so we don't know what it is. So, of course, I want to know that. Um, You know, tell me about your maneuver. What is that like? So I have a whole lot of questions for her that, as a historian of reproduction, she would know all these answers and probably tell me things I didn't even know enough to ask. So I'd definitely like to meet her. What were some of the stories in this book that really stood out for you? Well, one of the things that really comes across is the respect she has for working women. When she's working in Bridgewater and Taunton, it's um, weaving women. It's women in the textile trades, and she worries about them because she knows that their bodies are so um, sort of bent up and constricted by all the work that they do. And she describes the very hard physical labor they do. Like one of her patients miscarried and thought it was because she was um, putting out really heavy washing on the line. And that's what she thought caused it. Maybe, maybe not. We can't say. But that really comes through to me. And Stone's concern about women getting really good midwifery care comes through. She has some pretty scathing things to say about the women she calls ignorant country midwives who don't know very much. And she's sort of a consultant. She's often called in when things have already gone wrong and she has to write them. And she has the skills that sometimes she really can save the day. She really makes a difference. She'll be able to turn the baby in the womb and deliver it when other the other local midwife couldn't. And those are just very dramatic kinds of stories that, you know, are are impressive. I mean, there's some sad stories too. She almost always saves the mother, but she can't always save the baby. So very gripping reading. That was Mary Fissel. 
Feel free to drop us a line with ideas of topics and historians you'd like us to cover in this series. You can do that on our social media channels at History Extra. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow when Daniel Lee will be discussing his new book, The SS Officer's Armchair. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.